At a footnote to uh, Steve Evans' announcement a moment ago, uh, I would simply like to say that our space problem exists primarily in the children's department and uh, with reference to uh, adult education. We built this auditorium to seat eight to 900 people. Uh, we don't have any problem housing the Sunday morning worship group, and particularly with the evening service now, that's become less and less of a problem. The real problem is parking, as you well know, and that uh, gets to be a more difficult uh, situation as winter approaches and you have to walk long distances through uh, snow and ice. And we needed this property next door in order to uh, provide adequate parking close to the building. And then second, we, secondly, we need to do more with adult education. And then uh, our primary concern is our children's departments where we are maxed out in every department. So uh, this is a very critical need, and we need to do something about it. And if we break it down into bite-sized pieces, it really is not its not going to place uh, a heavy demand on any of us. It amounts, well, there are about 800 families, 800 units, really, in the church, families and individuals, between 12 to 1,400 people, depending on what's in season, uh, <laughs> which means that uh, each of those 800 units are responsible for about $50 a month above your regular giving. Now, that's not a great deal of money. Uh, that's, a sort of, that's within reach of any of us. So uh, we would like to have you pray seriously about that uh, need. We have built-in safeguards all along the line. We don't want to test the Lord. We don't want to run ahead of him. Uh, we want to raise the cash up front. That will be the Lord's way of indicating if we're to move into the next step. We don't want to burden you with a lot of demands. We're not going to talk about this a great deal because our preoccupation is people, seeing them become great in God's eyes, and not uh, building buildings. But this is a need that uh, we have to address. So we'd like to ask you to pray about that, about that concern. Uh, it is always interesting to me that non-Christians seem to have a better grasp of what it means to be a Christian than Christians do. Now, by that, I don't mean that they have a better grasp of what Christian theology ought to be. Rarely will you hear a non-Christian ever pointing out that our theology is bad. But what they do call to our attention is that our behavior is often very bad. It's disappointing to them when Christians lie without hesitation, when they cheat on their taxes, when they evade paying bills, when they break the law, when they fail to keep their word, when they freeload Shamelessly, when they desert their mates, they recognize that there's something radically wrong. They know, perhaps better than we know, that Christians bear the image of Christ. We ought to act as Christ acted. And that's why in almost every book, in both the Old and New Testament, there is always some very practical word about how we are to take this truth and put it into life, make it a part of, of our life. Paul always has a section in his book that we usually refer to as the practical section of the book where he takes the theology that he's been developing and he shows us how it works in life. Now, uh, that's true of the book of 1 Thessalonians that we've been looking at. Actually, the practical section begins in chapter 4. Paul says, finally, brethren, and then it takes him two more chapters to uh, finish. That's uh, what the sort of thing you would expect from a preacher. 
But uh, when Paul says finally, he is not really saying this is the end of what I want to say. He is saying now we're turning to the final point or the bottom line. This is where truth eventually comes to rest. It has to live in our lives. It has to be part of our, of our behavior. And this is his concern uh, in these final words at the end of chapter 5. Let's begin reading with verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those or know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, Paul's concern in these two verses is with our relationship to leadership in the church. We don't talk much about uh, the leadership in this, uh, in this church, but we have to from time to time because the apostles do. Uh, I'd like to correct one poor translation in the New American Standard. I forgot to look in the New International Version and see how they translated this phrase, but it's the, it's the statement, have charge over you in the Lord that I would like to correct. The word that's translated have charge literally is to stand in front of you. We would say those who are in front. Those who are up front. It's these that Paul is concerned with. Now the reason I think we need to, to change that translation is because it may give us an improper understanding of what leadership looks like in the church. It's not a matter of being over people. It's not a matter of bossing people around and lording it over them and, and telling people what to do. Some people are called to be up front more than others, but leadership in the church is always a leadership of of love and example and servanthood. Jesus made that very clear to the disciples when they uh, made their famous request to sit on his right side and on his left side, and Jesus said, that's not mine to give. The Father prepares those places. He appoints people to positions of responsibility and authority. He may exalt some. But he says, if you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be a leader, you must be the slave of all. Because the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, if you want to see an example of leadership, look at our Lord. He didn't go around uh, pushing people uh, around and demanding that they do what he tells them to do. It was a leadership of servanthood. In the, in the Gentile world, as Jesus put it, in the world outside, people think of leadership in terms of how many people they have under them. But he said, it must not, so, uh, it must not be so among you. You must uh, think in terms of those you are under, those you're serving. As a matter of fact, uh, heavy-handed, single-handed leadership is condemned in the person of diatrophies, whom John said loves to have preeminence. That must not be true of you. There's a wonderful figure that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, we men, Wednesday morning, were discussing this uh, passage where Paul uh, is contrasting the, the behavior of the Corinthians who were centering around certain people, Paul and Apollos and Peter, and thinking that wisdom and power resided in men. Paul's trying to correct that notion and uh, help them to see that it's not the men who are wise and powerful. It's God who's at work in them, who's accomplishing this work. He's saying, don't put these men on pedestals. Don't center on them. He says, if you want to think about them, think about, about them this way. And then he describes himself as a servant of the Lord. 
But uh, he uses a term that's not normally used for servanthood in the New Testament. It's the Greek word huperates that means an under roar. And he's thinking of a galley slave, a Roman galley slave who uh, pulled on the oars. Uh, Clean Baker, who's in our Wednesday morning class, uh, said he saw a cartoon some time ago. Showed a bunch of Roman uh, slaves standing on the dock. They were all shackled together, and a Roman galley was pulling into the bay, and one slave said to the other, My, what a big ship. I wonder what makes it go. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about that, that metaphor, Paul seeing himself as a slave. One of the men said that's, uh, that's not the way pastors normally look at their responsibilities. They think of themselves as up on the prow of the ship, dressed in their white uniform with the scrambled eggs on their cap, and and everybody in the church is down in the hole pulling on the sweeps. And you see, Paul turns that around. He says, no, the Lord is the one that's up on the bridge charting the course. And all of us, he says, are like galley slaves down underneath, pulling on the sweeps. We keep our eye on him, the speed with which the uh, a ministry moves, the direction it goes, the size to which it grows. That's all our Lord's prerogative. We just keep our eye on him and we just pull. Now, that's the way we ought to look at our, at our leaders, as under roars. And uh, we share together with them in the task of moving in the direction that the Lord ordains for us. Now, um, there are several things that Paul says about leadership, which we ought to take to heart, the way we ought to relate to our leaders. The first, Paul says, is get to know them. Get to know them. That's actually the word that's translated appreciate in verse 12. Get to know them. They're just ordinary people. Uh, no one is made out of any special material. We're all made out of dust. We're all flawed. We have the same problems that everyone else has. We struggle with our health. We struggle with our children. Uh, we have difficulties sometimes in our marriages. We get worried. We get anxious. We get concerned. We're all weak. We have the same problems that everyone else has and uh, it would be good if you just get to know your leaders, Paul is saying. Realize that they're, that they're ordinary people. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a man call me up and invite me out to lunch. And uh, that happens a lot. Uh, I, after almost 30 years in ministry, I've come to expect that whenever anyone calls me up and asks me out to lunch, they have something they want to ask me. They have a verse that they want explained, or they have a problem that they want me to think through with them, or they want some counsel, or they're critical of something that's going on. And and uh, that's fine. That's what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't bother me. I get used to it. But I just have this mindset. When someone calls me up, I know they want something. And so I... Uh, we, we made an appointment and we sat down and we began to eat together and he began asking me questions about my family and my background and, and what I was interested in and we chatted for about an hour and I looked at my watch and I had to leave and uh, I, I, uh, I thought now if we're going to really get down to brass buttons here I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to ask him so I said uh, I have to leave here in a few minutes tell me what can I do for you and he smiled and he said nothing, nothing he said I just wanted to get to know you and I thought, how odd, how odd. <laughs> but how wonderful, how encouraging. It's someone who just treated me like a real person. And I didn't object at all to the fact that he might have wanted something, but, but it was just nice to know that he wanted to get to know me. That's what Paul says. 
We need to get to know each other. The second thing he says is esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I get so weary of the media portrayals of clergymen. You know, they're always wimps or bores or buffoons or something. You know, you rarely see an honest portrayal of men and women in ministry by by the media. They just don't do that sort of thing. They don't esteem those in ministry very, very highly. But Paul says we should do that. We should value them because of their work. Their work, as Paul tells us here, is to instruct. They give you instruction. They tell you how to live life in this world. That's, that's the work that they're engaged in, the impartation of truth. They are, to some extent, like John the Baptist, voices in the wilderness. There's a plethora of voices out there that are crying out for attention, telling you that, uh, that all you have to have in order to be successful in life is this suit of clothes or this kind of car or this sort of, uh, of residence. And uh, they, they, they are telling you that man basically lives by bread alone. And all of us know that you can't live on bread alone. You get very hungry when you do. These people out there that are calling, these siren calls that you hear every day are, are not the sort of things that fill you up. They don't satisfy. The only thing that satisfies, we know, is God himself. So the role of those that are in positions of leadership is to impart truth to you, to instruct you, so that you understand the basis on which life can be truly lived successfully. Our goal as leaders is to make you great in God's eyes. And uh, that's, that's our work. And it's hard work. Uh, you know the old joke about preachers being uh, uh, six days invisible and on the seventh day incomprehensible. But uh, honest to goodness, as I watch some of these young men and women on our staff, I don't know how they do it. I don't have the energy to stay with the tasks the, the way they do. It costs them a great deal. It costs them in terms of their own personal energy and and uh, in terms of family life, and uh, it's hard. It's hard work. And we need to esteem them very highly. And, uh, when I was at Peninsula Bible Church, we used to have to make written reports to the elders every year. I don't want to, uh, I was afraid to say that. I was afraid our elders here might get that idea. Uh, actually, we make them verbally here, but we had to write them uh, at PBC. And a friend of mine, in the course of writing up his report, Uh, told what had happened the past year, and this is what he said. There were all forms, he's talking about the kind of problems he had to deal with. There were all forms of anger, from long-standing resentment and unforgiveness to rebellion, violence, child beating, mutilating, wife torture, threats against life. These were the counseling situations this man was involved in. Murder for hire and mafia-related revenge. There are the sexual offenses of rape, incest, sodomy, homosexuality, fornication, and the ever-present adultery. There are marital problems of every kind, attempted or completed suicide, and occasionally a successful suicide, abortions, adoptions. I see many family problems between parents or single parents and children. There are the addicts of every sort, alcoholics, drugaholics, foodaholics, workaholics, sexaholics, spendaholics, and so forth. 
There are the institutionalized, either coming from or going to a prison, hospital, detox unit, mental facility. There is the psychotic to deal with or the quieter problems of legal, finances, career questions about a specific passage of Scripture, or those simply wanting to know about Peninsula Bible Church. Those are the kind of problems that that your leaders, and I'm not just thinking of the pastors, the, the, the vocational staff people, but the elders and the Sunday school teachers and those who lead at every level of ministry. Those are, that's the kind of work that they're engaging in, freeing people from the blight of sin and from the, the, uh, uh, from the memory, the past memories of sin that, uh, that have so distorted their thinking. It's hard work. It's hard work. So Paul says, esteem them. Very, uh, very highly, and encourage them in in their task. And then third, Paul says, live in peace with them. Um, they're, they're not perfect. They're going to make mistakes. They're they're going to be guilty of bad judgment from time to time. We're all under under construction. We're going to make bad decisions. We're going to handle. Uh, personality uh, differences uh, improperly. And uh, we're going to rub people the wrong way. It's going to happen. What, what do you do in a case like that? Well, you don't withdraw. You don't write them off. You don't uh, uh, sit in judgment on them. You don't gossip about them. You, you talk to them. So you try to help them. It's one way to live at peace with them. You don't split and go someplace else. You, 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 you try to do what you can to help them grow. We're all in this together. Sometimes we're the discipler, sometimes we're the disciplee. You see, sometimes we need to be corrected and instructed and, and, and helped along, along the way. I have a good friend over in eastern Oregon. He's a rancher over there, and I just love to get letters from him because you know, I just chuckle my way through them. And, uh, he, he described, once described uh, a young pastor that, that they had selected for their church. And he said, what we got was a do-it-yourself preacher kit. We have to put him together. And uh, then the last letter I got, he, we have a, a, one of our IMM, Idaho Mountain Ministry, uh, mini-conferences this Wednesday where we gather a few pastors together and try to encourage them. And he's sending this young man over because he said, I think we picked him a little green, they said. <laughs> and... Uh, I, I under, but see, now that's the right attitude to have toward, toward leadership. Here's a young man that needs some help, and we want to encourage him and help him. If he doesn't communicate very well, we want to be patient with him. If he doesn't know how to study well, can't get as much out of the Word as we would like to, to see, then we encourage him in this task of study instead of judging him and, and criticizing him. We do everything we can to live at peace with the leadership and never, 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 split over these differences. It just grieves me to see churches split. I, I just heard a couple of weeks ago of uh, a church here in town struggling and having a difficult time, and some people are pulling out of the church, and they're starting another church. And I, it grieved me to hear that. I, I begged my men on Wednesday morning, if any of you are involved in this, please don't do this. What sort of witness are we giving to the world? When we can't pull together, you see. Uh, and if there are people here this morning that are involved in that, uh, in that situation, go back. Go back and, and talk to the leadership there and, and encourage them. Try to do what you can to correct that, 
that, uh, that situation. That's what Paul means when he says, let's uh, live at peace with one another. Well, these are all things that have to do with leadership. This is the way the body is to relate to leaders. Much encouragement there. Then in the verses that follow, Paul speaks of our relationship with one another. And you'll notice that uh, these commands are not addressed to the leadership of the church, but rather to the whole body. Everyone is involved in this, uh, in this ministry. He says in verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Uh, these, uh, these commands all have to do with the way we relate to one another. And, and the first command, Paul says, is to correct wrong, admonish the unruly. Don't let people go on in their sin. If you see people violating Scripture... And do something about it. Move in lovingly and graciously and, and help them get back in line. The word that Paul uses for unruly uh, is descriptive of someone who's out of step with the rest of the crowd. People are moving along in obedience to the Lord. And here's someone that steps out of line. What do you do? Well, you don't criticize them. You don't point fingers at them. You, you go back and, and you help them, you see. You talk to them about your sin, uh, about their sin. You take them out to lunch and, and gently uh, reprove them. Not in a mean-spirited, harsh, unloving way, but, but gently help them to, to get back into line. And then uh, here's another class. Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted. And we need to understand that he's not talking about specific classes of people. Uh, there are not uh, just a, a group of people that are unruly and a group of people that are, that ha- that are, uh, are weak in their faith. Any time, any of us could be in this position. And uh, if we see another brother or sister stepping out of, out of line, we need to, to move to their assistance and admonish them, point out the wrong that they're doing and the consequences of that, of that wrong. If they're faint-hearted, that is, they're, they're intimidated by, by life. Or if they're weak, as Paul describes some here, who are guilty, uh, who, who feel the weight of past sin, or they feel very insecure or inadequate uh, uh, to meet the demands of their life, Paul says, help them. Actually, it's the word cleave to them. Hang on to them. Give them a phone call or, or jot them an encouraging note. Or take a long walk uh, along the green belt with them and pray with them and encourage them in their faith as Jonathan did uh, uh, with David. The, we, we often describe the Christian life as a race, but we never think of, the, of this race as competitive. We're not trying to outdo each other. I think a better metaphor is that of a battlefield. People are being wounded all over the place. They're being crippled and hurt. And uh, we need to go over and help them, get them on their feet and, and get them walking again and, and minister to their needs, recognizing that we may be the next one who is in need. Uh, Carolyn has a wonderful little story that she tells about a little boy that, that uh, was looking for a pet and he went into a pet store and he looked at all the, the dogs and finally saw a little puppy in the corner and he watched it for a while and 
Then he went to the proprietor and he, he said, that's, uh, that's the little puppy that I want. And the proprietor said, no, I don't think you want that little dog. He's crippled. And the little boy pulled up his jeans and he had braces on his little crooked legs. And he said, it's all right, you see, because I'm a, I'm a cripple too. And I, that's the way we have to look at each other. We're all crippled. We're all weak. They're all always, uh, there are times when, when any of us can be a little soul. That's actually the word that, that Paul uses. Our, we fail in our faith and the demands of life are too much for us. And we're crushed by the burden of rearing children in this world or trying to make our marriages work and trying again and again, Paul says, we need to help each other. We need to admonish each other. We need to hang on to each other, not let anyone... And and then the great word, Paul says, is just be patient about this whole thing. In other words, try again. Never uh, never give up. Uh, A relationship is never hopeless. A marriage is not necessarily down the, down the drain just because things are going difficult. Uh, by God's grace, any situation can be turned around. So Paul exhorts us to keep trying uh, again and again. And then Paul says, never pay back evil for evil. In other words, don't, uh, don't retaliate. Don't fight back. You know how these things work out in a family. Someone says a harsh word, and, and a harsh word flies out of your mouth, and the other person says a harsh word, and pretty soon you're just like a bunch of horses in a corral kicking each other. You know how that starts. One horse kicks another one, and, and that horse kicks back, and pretty soon they're all kicking each other, and nobody knows how the fight got started, but uh, there's a lot of harm, a lot of damage being done. Paul says, don't, uh, don't do that. Uh, we were talking at our staff retreat this last weekend about uh, this last week rather about Moses, who's described in the in the Bible as the meekest man, the most humble man that ever lived. Moses had to learn not to retaliate. Uh, his first uh, effort at setting things right resulted in the murder of an Egyptian, and Moses always had trouble with his temper. Uh, it was easy for him to fly off the handle. But uh, when Miriam came to him and accused him of usurping authority that was not his, it says uh, Moses just fell on his face. Uh, the word for our English word humility is based on the Latin word humus. that means dirt. Uh, that's what humility is. It's getting down in the dirt. And that's what Moses did. He just, he just hit the dirt every time he was criticized. didn't retaliate got on his face before God, and he said, you, you understand what they're saying about me? And he let God fight for him. He didn't feel that he had to set everything right. And uh, God did take care of him in that particular situation. Miriam was afflicted with leprosy as a result of her attack upon her brother. And then Moses prayed for him. He prayed for the woman that had assaulted him verbally. And that's what it means to not repay evil with evil, but to seek good. That's what Jesus meant when he said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those that, uh, that despitefully, uh, for those that despitefully use you. And then uh, Paul begins to talk about our relationship to circumstances, first leadership and then the way we relate to one another within the body. And then in verse 16, our circumstances. Rejoice always. 
Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in, in Christ Jesus. First, rejoice. Rejoice always. Be cheerful. Don't let life get you down. Don't be glum and sour about life. Don't get resentful and bitter because life has dealt you a bad hand. Because actually it's God, you see, who determines the affairs and the events of, of, of our lives. I, uh, I know some people, some good friends of mine, who, who are just very bitter, resentful people. Because uh, their mates have deserted them or their children children have treated them in a certain way or, or life in various ways has hurt them and, and harmed them. And they're just filled with, with resentment and, and bitterness and anger and hostility. And you can see it on their faces. And every time they talk, uh, there's a lot of anger and a lot of hardness in, in their souls. And uh, I, you know, I just, sometimes I just want to, I want to grab them by the front of the shirt, shake them a little bit, and say, "Don't you understand? Don't you understand that God is the one who's behind all the circumstances of your life? That these hard things that are happening to you, which if accepted from God's hands, uh, it, you know, if you don't waste your suffering, if you use it, this is the thing that's going to make you. It's going to cause you to grow. You're going to become a more beautiful person. You're going to be able uh, to face into even harder things in life. You're going to have more stamina. There'll be more toughness about you as well as as more sweetness. Don't you realize that, that the Apostle Paul prayed that he might know God and the fellowship of his sufferings? He even asked God that he might share in Christ's sufferings because he knew that suffering ultimately would do him a world of good. Now, that's an odd sort of a thing to ask for, but that's exactly what Paul requested because he knew that would be the making of the man. That's what makes the man or the woman. It's these hard things in life that cause us to grow unless we get, unless we get bitter. We, Paul says, rather rejoice. Be glad. Don't be sour. Don't be glum. Don't get bitter about life. Don't you see that God is at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure? This is his will. This is his way of making you the kind of person that he wants you to be. This is the way he's, he's teaching you to give up what you want, to lose your fear of losing, to make you easier to get along with, to make you more like our Lord Jesus, and therefore we need to rejoice. Uh, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms because I find myself there so many times. Psalmist looks around him and he, and he sees how terrible things are going for him and how well they're going for everybody else. He says, those who don't care about God are fat, dumb, and happy. They have everything they ever asked for. They skate through life without a problem in the world and everything is happening to me. And he starts to get real angry and bitter. And then right in the middle of this thing, he stops and he says, whoa, wait a minute. If I'd gone around talking this way, I would have devastated a whole generation, he said. And he went into the sanctuary, and uh, he, he got a better picture of who God is and how much God loved him. And he began to see God's perspective on life, and he drew this conclusion. Let me read it. You don't need to turn to these verses. I was senseless and ignorant. I was just like an animal, he said. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you're guiding me. 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. Take away my health, he says. Take away my family. Take away my marriage. Take away my job. Take away everything in this life. I still have God. And the nearness of God is my good. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. So I would say, cheer up, ye saints of God. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to make you feel afraid. Nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails, so why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry you worried it all tomorrow morning. That's the way the song puts it. All right, some of you remember uh, uh, David uh, Forey singing for us that chorus, Be Ye Glad. It goes something like this. Now from your dungeon a rumor is stirring, though you've heard it again and again. Ah, but this time your cell keys are turning, and outside there are faces of friends. Though your body lay weary from wasting and your eyes show the sorrow you've had, oh, the love that your heart is now tasting has opened the gates. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Oh, be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. Be ye glad. So why on earth do you get bummed out? Oh, there are those times when, when life comes down on our shoulders and it crushes us. But we just need to remember that we have God and that's all we need. Our guilt has been taken care of. Our sin has been paid for. We have an eternal life of fellowship with God and our Christian friends forever. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. Or as Paul says, rejoice always. And then he says, pray without ceasing. That's the way you draw on these great resources of God. Prayer is a mystery. I don't hope to explain it, never will be able to explain it. I just know that it's something commanded. And it really has to do with uh, maintaining a worshipful relationship with God. Paul says, just uh, pray about everything. Pray wherever you go. There ought to be those protracted times of, of prayer. We ought to set aside time for worship. On a regular basis, and out of that regular time of worship flows this attitude of praying wherever you go, where, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, pray. Uh, Karen Walters shared uh, with the women at Mom's Group a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, her uh, little diary, little journal that she keeps. And uh, she plays I Spy with herself all day. And whenever she sees God at work, that's uh, She notes that in, in her journal. That's her I Spy journal. And she plays that game with her children. When they're traveling in the car, they try to spy God everywhere and uh, just give thanks for what, what they have because of his hand in their life. That's what it means to, to pray and to worship without, without ceasing. And then Paul says, give thanks. Give thanks. Don't dwell on the negatives. Don't think about all the difficult things in life. Rather, center on the, on the things that God is doing and give thanks. Uh, Paul says that's the will of God for your life. We want to do some, we always think of God's will in terms of some great 
activity that he has in mind for us. But uh, here Paul says, God's will for you is that quiet response to every circumstance to give thanks. Give thanks for God's adequacy. Give thanks for his presence. Give, give thanks for his love. Give thanks for these little serendipities, these little happy surprises that come into life uh, from time to time that let us know that God is very near and cares, cares very much uh, about us. Now, we have to hurry on. Verse 19 through 22, Paul talks about our relationship to the word. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Uh, in the days in which Paul wrote these words, there was no New Testament. You understand, this was probably the first book in the New Testament to be written. They didn't have a written uh, word as we have. All they had was the Old Testament. And as the writings of the uh, apostles uh, uh, were uh, as they were collected and gathered, the New Testament came into being. But in the interim, they had prophets who received direct revelation from God. And we know from 1 Corinthians 14 how that worked. They would be seated in a meeting like this, and a word of revelation would come to a prophet, a man or a woman, and she would stand, and she would proclaim God's word to the congregation. And that was the way the word was received. Paul says, don't quench that spirit. When the prophets prophesy, listen to what they have to say. But neither should you be gullible and naive. Test the spirit to be sure that it's true to the spirit of revelation. In other words, is, is this in keeping with the Old Testament revelation that they had? And there were evidently other prophets there that had the gift of discernment that could test the validity of this uh, prophet's words. And uh, there are other ways we know from from Deuteronomy 18 to approve the prophets. We don't have time to go into that now. But uh, that was the way they did it in, in those days. Today, we have the written word. And uh, Paul would say the same thing to us. He would say, first, don't quench the Spirit. When the Spirit takes a word of Scripture and, and reminds you of that truth, listen, pay attention. Uh, this past week, I... Uh, I learned in a very vivid way how this works. There's a certain thing that I do that Carolyn does not want me to do. It scares her. I won't tell you what it is. But uh, she always asks me not to do it, and I sort of minimize her fear. That's to my shame, but I really don't pay much attention to her, and occasionally I do it. And I have learned not to tell her because it worries her. And uh, so last week, right out of the blue, she said, Have you done so-and-so lately? And I said, no. <laughs> I looked her right in the eyes and I said, no. And it was a great big lie. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It just popped out. <laughs> <clears throat> and then what do you do? You know, you can't admit to a lie, so you just, you know, you just fake it and you go on. And you know, this, this was, I think this was Tuesday. Every time I got up, to look at the word in the morning, there was this quiet little voice. You need to go confess that lie. I said, oh, I wasn't much of a lie. I mean, <laughs> no, you need you need to you need to confess that lie. See? And it was just so it was very gentle, but very persistent. 
And so finally, Saturday morning, I was trying to put the finishing touches on this passage, and I read that verse. And I thought, my goodness, I've been quenching the Spirit all all week. And so I had to go to Carolyn and confess that I had lied to her about that, that activity. Now, you see, that's what Paul means when he says, abstain from evil, pursue what's good, do what's right, don't do what's wrong. And when the Spirit of God puts his finger on some activity in your life that's sinful, don't quench him. And then secondly, test the spirits. And you hear some preacher, me or anyone else, expound the word, say, well, okay, that may be one way of looking at it, but I'm going to check it out myself. Paul said of the people in Thessalonica that they were more noble, or pardon me, the people in Berea, they were more noble than the people in Thessalonica because they received, uh, they, they, they uh, listened to the Apostle Paul and they checked him out to see if these things were so. What things? Well, the things that the Apostle Paul taught. They'd listen to Paul and they'd say, hmm, that's a thought. And they'd go back into the Old Testament and they would see if Paul was right. And if Paul, he, he was right, but if he hadn't been right, they could have said, no, Paul, that's not true. Now, what that says to us is that when you hear anybody preach the word, I don't care who it is, some radio preacher or someone from this pulpit, you should listen to it, but don't take anybody's word for it until you've checked it out in the Word. Because our task as teachers is simply to say again what the apostles have said. And if we're not saying what they have said, if we're saying something contrary to what they have said, that's heresy. And you have the responsibility uh, to, uh, to uh, make, that, uh, make that judgment. Now, our time is gone. I am so sorry. Let me just leave you with this final word, verses 23 uh, through the end. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you, and he also will bring it to pass. That's one of those great lines in Scripture that I hope we never forget. Faithful is he who called you, and he will do it. Praise God. It is not my responsibility to crank this obedience out. I can read what Paul says, and here's just one, you know, just a string of imperatives, one command after another, a litany of things to do. Do this, do this, do this. And I think, oh my, you know, the Spirit is willing, I want to do this, but the flesh is so weak. Paul says, faithful is he who, is, is he who called you, and he will do it. He's going to sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit, when he comes. You see? In other words, God is at work in us to provide the will and the power to do these things. Oh, there will be failures along the way. We'll struggle. We won't get it right at all times. But God is at work to accomplish this process he describes as sanctifying the whole person until he comes back. And when we stand before him, John says, we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him. The process will be complete. And uh, so then he wraps it up for us. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I think that's an ancient practice that we ought to reinstitute. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And so that's at least one command of Paul's that we've been obedient to. We have read it as we went through our study. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I hope this book has been helpful to you. It's a book filled with practical, helpful instruction. And the purpose of it, as Paul says, is to show us what it means to be the kind of person that God has called into a relationship with him. And then we have this final word, God's at work, to do it. Let's pray. Will you stand together with me? Father, how much we have to be thankful for. Thank you for this, uh, this word, these gentle words that remind us that uh, our task is to be your men and women in the world, that we're not called to live self-indulgent, self-centered, self-complacent lives, but we are to be made into new men and women by your Spirit, transformed into new beings. We're given the task of helping one another to grow up and become great in your eyes. Help us through your Word and through your Spirit to come into our own, to ring true as Christians, to have the real thing, to be authentically Christian wherever we go. We pray that we would make visible the person of Christ in our shops, our offices, our neighbors, our houses, wherever we are, that we would be what you've called us to be. And we thank you for this final encouraging word. Faithful is the one who called us, and he will do it. We're counting on you to conform us to your image. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.